Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples grumbling in vain? The earth's kings are taking positions, leaders conspiring together against Adonai and his anointed. They cry, let's break their fetters, let's throw off their chains. He who sits in heaven laughs, Adonai looks at them in derision. Then in his anger he rebukes them, terrifies them in his fury. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the decree, Adonai said to me. You are my son. Today I became your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The whole wide world will be your possession. You will break them with an iron rod shatter them like a clay pot. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you judges of the earth. Serve Adonai with fear. Rejoice, but with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish along the way, when suddenly his anger blazes. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, I will just a, just a brief uh, a review there. Um, the overall idea of what we spoke about last week was with was within Psalm 127, and the idea being that you know true blessings only come when the Lord works. So we look at the Lord as the one who's working, not uh, our efforts that are being crowned with glory and so forth. You know, um, in the Psalm talked about you know how you, you do things in vain, and if it's if it's without the Lord, you're doing it in vain. So we we looked at that and the different pictures there and the different ideas of you know, running after things and grabbing for things that really are empty and deceptive and hopeless and helpless without God. And that was the message from last week. And I, I, I see this psalm this week. Um, you know, some people actually call Psalm 2 the call. The, if you look at Psalm 2, they also, some people will say this is the, the picture of the psalms in general. In other words, if you get a good grasp of what Psalm 2 is saying, that you kind of got the whole message of the whole psalms. So that's interesting. I don't know that, you know, I'm not advocating to not read 149 chapters of scripture but uh it's kind of neat to think about that if that is the case that this is there's a lot in here whether we'll dig out all of that here today or not i don't know but i do see this message as a nice complement to what we talked about last week and i really i had a picture in my mind earlier this week and i meant to bring with me a little visual to show you um but anyone know what a nail set is besides steve crane i'm sure knows what a nail set is um it's a thing that you, if you don't know what it is, you know, when you, when you pound a nail into wood, you, you, does anyone not know what one is? There we go, fine. I'm talking to you four people. That's great. Um, and uh, a nail set, when you, when you hammer a nail into a piece of wood, you know, you, na- you nail it in and you, you attach the wood to whatever you're, whatever you're attaching to the wood, and it nails it in. But you've got the head of the nail is still on top of the wood. And there's times when you want the nail to be a little bit further down, but you know, you've, got a, you've got a big fat hammer and you've got a nail, and it just won't go any further down unless you use what's called a nail set. And a nail set just kind of finishes the job. You take this nail set, it's pointy, it's, uh, it's skinnier than the, whole, the, the head of the nail, and you put it on top of the, the nail head, and you hit the nail set. And that pushes the nail even further down into the wood. So you've got a space there, you can fill it in with some putty, or you can paint it, or what have you. So I kind of see this psalm, what this psalm is bringing us in terms of a message as the nail set. We got the idea last week that yes, you know, true blessings only come when the Lord works, and, and working without the Lord is working in vanity. 
And the message this week, I believe, kind of just takes that message and brings it a little further because it was a process that we talked about. It was, not, it was talking about as we ascend to the Lord into physical presence of the Lord and the spiritual presence of the Lord, that it is a process in which we go. And I think this is, uh, this is the, the set on top of that nail to push this message and drive this message home a little bit deeper would be my, my hope that we do for today. Um, we're in October now, and October to me, um, especially just having been in school for the last three years, I never used to think about spring break, fall break. I mean, there was no break. I was just working, so there's no breaks like there used to be. Those mem- memories were very distant, you know, summer vacation and all this kind of stuff. Um, but in work, it was a little different. But October, regardless, whether you're in school or whether you're in work, it's kinda, I kind of see it as this limbo time because, you know, unfortunately, summer, <laughs> summer's gone. You know, so we're too far. We can think about the memories of summer, but it's gone. And really, the next holiday or time off, you know, if you will, is a little far out there, too. I mean, it's Thanksgiving break, you know, and then you got the Hanukkah and Christmas and so forth and New Year's. But you're sort of just in that middle, like that point of no return. You can't really go back and you can't go forward. But I wanted just to maybe uh, start off talking a little bit about about breaks. Anyone thinking that far ahead for a, a Thanksgiving break where they're going? Anybody going far away where you're flying? A couple people flying? Anyone driving away for, for, for Thanksgiving? Going to drive? Now, you know, um, statistically, flying is safer. So you're the smarter when you're flying. Right? You're <laughs> flying, and Aaron, you're very smart. Flying is a much safer way to go, right? Um, we look at it statistically on paper. We know, you know, uh, logistically how all the fly, how flying works. You know, they got airplanes that are maintained and... They're you know, supposedly in tip-top shape all the time. The pilots are trained. Uh, the pilots don't just kind of fly willy-nilly. I mean, we've had a lot of we've had some recent scares and accidents lately. But in in, in general, still statistics are, are overwhelming in favor of flying in terms of safety. You know, as air traffic control tells you, you're going from here to here at this time, this altitude, this heading. I mean, it's very regulated and it's very much you know in control and it's much safer. Now, when you're on the road, what you'll find out who was driving? I was the, the Davis. Who's you'll, you're driving? Yeah. See, you'll find that you know really. It doesn't take much to drive a car, you know. Really, uh, if you've got a key, right, that's about it. That's all you need. Key and a car, access to a car. You can drive. You can just, anyone can drive. Licensure isn't really important, unfortunately. People can drive just with the key in the car. Um, cars go wherever they want to go, this lane to that lane, like that. They can uh, leave whenever they want. They can be tired. They can be drunk. They can be whatever when you're driving out there. Um, some cars, you know, you see them on the highway, you're not sure how they got out of the driveway, let alone <laughs> maybe some of you have cars like that, I don't know. Uh, not sure how it even got up to speed on the highway, but it's very much different, right? Com- when we look at it that way, we, I don't think many would argue really that in general, flying is safer than driving. But, you know, I realize that, but why is it that whenever I'm on a plane... And I get on the plane, and you get in the little door, and oh, everybody's so cheerful, and you know, how are you? Welcome, 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 welcome. How are you doing? How are you doing? And then you sit down. I sit down, the door shuts, and we start moving, and I'm trying to distract myself, you know, and not think about it. And then when that plane starts, when we're in the final, you know, takeoff, you know, I, I know flying is safer than driving. But I just sort of say, well, all right, that's it, you know. It was nice knowing you. I'm going to die, <laughs> you know. It's inevitable. I decided I've taken care of what I'm going to take care of, and that's, that's that. You know, I'm going to die. I used to tease my dad. My dad drives everywhere. He drives when it makes absolutely no sense. He lives in Maryland on the East Coast. He just came and visited us last week, you know, or no, a couple weeks ago. 
He's been down here three, four times, and he's driven every time, 1,800 miles, and uh, takes him three, four days. And I'm always like, why don't you just fly? Nah, I don't like to fly, so I want to have my car with me. Okay, there's a thing called rental cars. You, know, you can rent a car. It's not a big deal. It's cheaper to fly. It's safer to fly. You don't have three nights on the road. And he's got all the reasons why he wants to drive versus fly. And, uh, and uh, we, we tease him about that, that he's afraid to fly. And, and I've, I've come to realize uh, that my dad's not afraid to fly. Um, I'm not afraid to fly. You're not afraid to fly. The problem is we like to be in control. You know, we don't like the fact that we're not in control of that plane, you know. Uh, it's a control issue because it's not the car versus the plane. We've, we've been over that. We know the safety things. I remember when I was even learning to drive, my mom was in the car next to me, and I, every once in a while I'd hear this, you know, thump, 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 thump. I'd look over it, it was her foot in the passenger seat, you know, because it was going into the floorboard every so often <laughs> because I just wasn't stopping maybe when she thought I should stop, you know. And uh, she wasn't in control. Now, maybe that happens to some of you when you're driving with your spouses. We don't need to comment <laughs> on that. Me especially. <laughs> I'd be in big trouble. Um, so, you know, we all like to do our own thing, you know. And control really does play, play a number on us if, if we stop and think about it, this idea of control and independence. And this psalm opens up with an in interesting picture, I think, that's related to that. It, it's got this picture of the nations, the people, the kings, the rulers, uh, pooling their creative resources in an attempt to obtain freedom for themselves. And it's not, the picture here is not just some general um, unsettledness or some general disagreement. It's organized, out-and-out out organized conspiracy that David says is going on here. And he, and he opens a bit like we talked about last week, saying that, you know, they're doing, there's all this activity going on, this conspiracy, this conspiring, this, this you know, putting of our heads together in, in rebellion. Uh, and D David's asking, why are they doing this in vanity? Now, different word than what we saw last week with vanity, but very similar idea. A lot of work without effort, a lot of work just kind of fluff, nothing's really happening. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm from Maryland. Um, anybody know the state bird of Maryland, other than Lee Cooperman, if he's here? State bird. We have all these state things. So the state bird of Maryland is the Baltimore Oriole. Oh. Maybe it may make sense. Usually I get, oh, yeah. There's a state flower. Uh, state, there's actually the state sport of Maryland. Maryland. You can get anyone want to guess what the state sport is? Like, you'd think so, really. You'd never guess. And then unless if you guess, then I'll say, oh, you guess. Um, jousting. It's a big horse country. I mean, there's horses, and that's, that was, that's been the state sport. I mean, and there are jousting festivals. There, there's Renaissance festivals and so forth. And if you don't know jousting, you know, you're riding on a horse with a stick and trying to knock the other person off. So that's the state sport. Um, state crustacean. Anyone know the state crustacean? Close. Not lobster. That is a crustacean. Crab. The Maryland blue crab is the state crustacean of Maryland. So now you're ready for Jeopardy if you ever get asked that question. But, you know, I, now listen, I, I grew up in a conservative Jewish household, and if, you know, if you're new to Judaism or anything Jewish, you know, shellfish are off limits, right? Only things with fish, thins and scales. However, now, is Lee here? Lee had, he knows this. Lee knows this already, that Maryland, we have a specific, uh, you know, there's a thing. If you're a Maryland Jew, you kind of get a pass on that because, <laughs> because the Chesapeake Bay is there, and, man, Maryland blue crabs are delicious. 
and, uh, and, and shrimp and all this stuff. So there's a pattern. Maryland Jew is what we, someone taught me that years ago. I felt very free and relieved. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in all seriousness, I, you know, I, I, I grew up eating crabs. And uh, if you've ever seen crabs uh, cooked, it's interesting. You know, they, they boil them in a pot of water, <coughs> alive. And they, they were blue. I always wonder why they call them blue, because they were always red when I saw them. Because they, they go from blue to red after you boil them. They boil them alive. And you get a pot of water, and if you take a crab and you put a cra crab in the pot of water, uh, and just one crab, the crabs, I mean, they're, they, I mean, they move. They don't, get, they don't have two legs. I mean, they got a bunch of legs, flippers, fins, and little pinchers and stuff, and whoop, they're out. You know, they're out, of the, they're out of the bucket, out of the pot. So what you do is you take two, three crabs, put them in there, and they'll be there all day. Because as soon as one starts going out, well, the next one's trying to go out, and it pulls that one down. This, this guy's just about out. He gets pinched and pulled down while the next one, and then the next one. And so that picture there, you know, like, like kind of like crabs, you know, struggling. The only thing that ever happens is they don't go anywhere other than in getting boiled in the pot of water, right? Um, that's the picture, them struggling in a pot. So, so like that, the nations, the rulers, people, uh, that's just like anyone else who struggles uh, and sets themselves, how the text here tells us, set themselves against God. That's the picture that's going on here. And verse 3 tells us the motivation. You know, what's the motivation behind the, consp con the conspiracy that's going on? Um, and we see they're trying to free themselves. I, think I like the way that I think Sharon's, tr the CJB, the complete Jewish Bible, talked about fetters. You know what fetters are? They're handcuffs, basically. Um, uh, fetters. The, uh, they're trying to free themselves. They feel restricted from their freedom. And have you ever known anyone who's very outspoken? And we, we may meet some today if you're down in the mall that are very outspoken against their resistance. <laughs> no finger pointing. Uh, about their resistance towards God, you know? Very, I mean, almost angry sometimes. Or, or, or even just, not angry, but like, really, I don't want anything to do with that. And if you ever try to get to the bottom of what's fueling their opposition, uh, I've, I've found, and, and when I read stuff that sort of speaks against that, I, I find that quite often it's the thought that belief or trust in God is something that is, in fact, limiting one's exercise of freedom and fun. Uh, they might verbalize it by saying something like, you know, oh, you know it, it, believing in God and living that kind of life, it's just God's a crutch, and I don't need that crutch, you know. Um, or it's uh, just a bunch of do this and don't do that, that kind of life, and maybe it's good for you, but it's not for me. I don't need that kind of crutch. I don't need that kind of support. Um, that's what you might hear it being voiced as. And our society does place a great uh, deal of value on independence, doesn't it? We talked about control and independence earlier. And, any, and, and so many things in our society are geared, geared towards that. Um, even from a very young age, I think about you know, infants. We've had a few, and I know many of you have had children in here. And we can, In different eras you grow up, different things are kind of cool and hip and what you do and so forth. But really, in general, the idea is that when a child's a baby, you know, put them in the room by themselves, a brand-new infant, put them in the crib. Um, oh, don't go get him. He's crying. I know. Let him, let him soothe himself. Give him that gift of independence, you know. <laughs> Talking about a, you know, a one-week-old, two-week-old, three-week-old, one-month-old. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's true, though. You know, when, when people find out, they say, Where, where's your baby's crib? Where's your baby sleeping and so forth? Where's your baby quarantine, basically? But I've read, I've read these <laughs> thoughts. I've read these thoughts about, you know, the idea that let them soothe themselves. It's a gift. Give them that gift of independence. And then, then what do we talk about from there? Well, we send them off to school, get an education, get a good job. When you turn 18, go out and get a place of your own, you know, and 
Make it on your own. Go out on your own and do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of ingrained in the whole, the whole way we think. And um, I have an older sister, and I remember one time, uh, I, about five, six years ago, she wanted me to help her move something at her house. Like, you know, just mo- she lived down the street, moved some furniture. And as we were doing it, she, um, she was really sheepish about it. She felt very embarrassed, and I thought, well, what's the problem? She said, well, you know, I, I just feel, I feel bad because I've made a vow to myself that I would never, and she's single, she said, I, I just vowed that I would never own anything, that I couldn't move it on my own, that I would need anyone's help with. And it was kind of sad when I thought about it. And it's really, I think it kind of highlights just how unhealthy our drive for independence uh, is. And I believe that it certainly leads to a disassociation from one another. Um, but on the bigger scale, and what I'm wanting to talk about today is the, the incremental associ- disassociation it leads to from God. That's the, that'd be on the good side, to an outright rebellion on the other, which is what we're seeing uh, in, this, in this text here. And I want to ask, you know, even if, even if this is what's going on, even if the rulers and the nations are right, even if people who oppose God are right about this, you know, we're restrained and we don't have complete absolute freedom and I'm being oppressed in some way by God, even if that's true, I want to ask you, um, is that such a bad thing? Is restraint... Such a terrible, terrible curse to be put upon you that you can't do what you want. You know, I can't tell you the number of times in the last, you know, seven years, eight years that I've been, I've looked like this, pulling kids across parking lots to try to get to a sidewalk or something, <laughs> and one's pulling this way and one's pulling that way, and I'm like, I, you know, I'm excited that my kids have free, that when they learn to walk, it's very exciting. We want them to walk, and then we don't have to carry them, they get to walk now. Um, but there are times when, look, i got to get you to the sidewalk, and I know you want to go that way. I'm sorry, but I'm going to restrain you. I'm going to redirect you this way. And the reality there is that uh, as a loving father, uh, I need to do that. I need to restrain. I need to control. And my kids need to also realize that this is not oppressive. This is not limiting your fun of running in the parking lot at uh, Target. This is, this is saving your life to get you across the street. And I believe God operates that way as well, and he thinks that way as well. We read about um, uh, provisions for slavery, and, and, and I'm, I'm not advocating slavery here. Please don't get me wrong. But in the book of Exodus, you know, we, we, we read about you know, what happens to a slave when they've re- reached the end of their tenure. There's actually a, a, a provision for them to remain on. You know, they can have a hole pierced through their ear. They can say, look, I, I, I want to stay with my family. I, I think my master treats me well, and I want to stay. Let me commit my life to them. And we put a hole through the, through the slave's ear. Um, you read many times in, 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 in the New Covenant scriptures, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, uses a word that often is, is translated servant, but it's really slave. He talks about being a slave of the Messiah. So you've got this kind of weird, sometimes we, in our minds, this thought of, well, I don't want to be a slave and oppressed and not free to do what I want to do. But I think when you read Paul talking about being a slave of Messiah, you, you see that that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not an oppressive thing. And so that's the opening picture that we have here. And then it kind of shifts towards uh, taking a look from God's position. And I can't remember what Sharon's uh, translation said there, but it's kind of interesting that, you know, many of us are, other than me, we're all just about sitting in a chair, we're seated. And some of your translations might say, God is seated in the heavens. You know, he sits, on, he sits in the heavens, because that's what it says in the text, sits in the heavens. Um, no offense, when Matt Holloman sits in the chair, Matt Holloman sits in the chair. When God sits in the chair, he's enthroned. Different. 
So yeah, God's sitting in the heavens, but he's enthroned. He's looking down, you know? It's kind of like wherever the, you know, whether the President Obama, like him or not, if he's hang gliding, if he's in a Piper Cub, if he's in the 747, he is in Air Force One. Regardless, all those things become Air Force One. So the chair in heaven becomes the, the any chair God sits on is the throne. Any chair me or Matt sit on just becomes where we're sitting. So um, it's by default. But he's sitting up there, and he's, he's ruling and reigning. And I kind of like to look at his, his uh, the progression, because this is kind of where things pick up speed. Kind of his, his reaction to all of this, these, uh, what I picture are the crabs in the pot, you know, how he looks at this. And first he just kind of chuckles, you know, he kind of laughs. And then he, and then, where does he go to derision next? I think it holds him in derision. Mine says derision. Actually, the next one is he rebukes them in his anger. Uh, Either way, this idea, the Hebrew idea of anger is kind of cool because if you know Hebrew, the word is the same for, as it is for nostril or nose. So you can just picture a flared nostril, you know. This is kind of, the, the, this is kind of the, the progression. The derision part is an interesting idea. I, I kind of, when I, when I re- researched this word, I didn't really know what derision means. It's sort of a, the way I, the way I picture it is it's like a mocking, a mocking tone, like a mocking response. It's kind of like a, I was picturing like people in a break room at work and the boss comes in and says, hey, you got to get back to work in five minutes. And they okay, and they leave and, and the boss leaves and somebody goes, you can get back to work in five minutes. You know. <laughs> that's kind of that's the picture of what the Hebrew is explaining with this idea of, of being held in derision. It's not pretty, is it? It's not a real like, you know, you think about, Chaim's often talked about the Norwegian Yeshua with the blonde flowing hair and the blue eyes strolling down the street, palms forward, you know, like this kind of thing. <laughs> this is not, you read this picture here, this is not, this is not it. This is not the pic- this is the picture of, you know, coming down the street with a with a stick and busting stuff up and like it's nothing like his child's play, which is what he's doing. Uh, and he's getting very serious here and basically saying, um, the imagery here is he's saying, you know, you've got your plans, I see them. But he very emphatically says here that, you know what, I've got my plans too. And let me tell you about them. Um, he says I. He mentions I like three or four times here. He says I. First of all, he says I, which you don't have to say I, the pronoun I. He says, I, is that right, madame? Isn't that right? <laughs> there is, I need to start off. <laughs> Forgot on this one. But he says, I, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, my mountain of holiness. So he's very deliberate um, about letting people know, you know, up to this point in the psalm, we've seen these things. We've seen that, you know, God basically has, will call out those who choose to oppose him in his purposes, laugh at their plans, let them know in, in no uncertain terms who's in charge. And that he and his anointed leader, um, basically nothing, nothing short of destruction awaits them who oppose him. And his anointed leader, just to, just to backtrack just a moment, I, I may get to it later, but just this psalm in general, um, many, even the rabbis view this as a messianic psalm. Speaking of the Messiah, it talks about his anointed one, his anointed one. This is all part of his plan that I'm going to get to later, um, but that this is a messianic psalm. The language here, uh, sure, it is you know, something that could have been recited at the coronation of a king. They call that a, a royal psalm. Um, but the language is much, much more bigger than that. And, it, and it, it, it harkens us back when you read the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which talks about the Davidic covenant. The covenant will go on forever, that God will put in place his anointed one forever. This is the language that is speaking of here. So I do believe this is talking about God's overall plan, and I believe his anointed, his mishicho here is, is none other than Yeshua, Jesus. 
But I think the tendency we have when reading scripture like this, reading this, you know, yeah, someone's rebelling and God's getting ready to get them. I think the, 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 at least my reaction is to kind of, kind of get behind God over here, looking at what's going on over there and say, yeah, uh-huh, get them, God. That's right. You go get them. They're rebel- you get them. Uh, I think that's our natural tendency. And what we need to realize is that this is really, this picture is not the bad guys who are rebelling. Yeah, go get them. This is a picture of human nature. And I see all humans in this room. So I believe it's a picture of every single, yes, yes, Matt, you too. I see this as a picture of all of us. And I think with this psalm, at least what it's telling me is we need to realize that, that all human flesh desires in some form or fashion to take control. And in some way or another is actively rebellious on some level. And I would venture to say that at some point in, in our lives, whether it's happened now, whether it's happened in the past, whether it's coming in the future, um, something's going to be going on, and we may sense even that it's God that's bringing it our way, that we just don't like it. We don't like the way this is going. We don't like what we're being asked to do. Um, I think there was something even in the tidbits talking about this. I may look at that again. This is actually good stuff. If you don't read your Torah tidbits... This is, this is worth the price of admission right here, uh, these things that Rabbi Chaim puts together. Um, don't read them now, of course. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but he talks about this idea of, you know, following God's plan, l- listening for his voice. And, and I think sometimes we hear it and we don't like it. And our response can be anywhere along the spectrum of kind of an innocuous sort of damage control, trying to control things and, and orchestrate them, massage them in a particular way. That's one side of the spectrum, or the ditch, as, as Chaim says. And the other ditch is what we see, the outright rebellion. You know, but in some form or another, our flesh will seek to take control. And, and I don't want us to miss this, because it, the predisposition, I believe, is in each one of us. Because this, again, is a picture of human nature. Um, there's a, there's, those things are latent in there somewhere. No different than um, maybe you've got something in your genetics that might make you predisposed to having high blood pressure or high cholesterol or gain a lot of weight if you're not careful or, or what have you. The point is it's in there, and if left unchecked, it can blow, you know, become a full-blown case of whatever. And that's something I think we need to, to realize that's going on there and that in this, uh, in this situation, in this, in this psalm, I think we read about the, the, the picture of king's rulers uh, having their own solution to this problem. And again, I want us to think about it. We often have our own as well when things come our way, our own way of dealing with stuff, right? Um, I know people have told me before, I, I'm just pretty good at dealing with stuff, and I think I'm pretty good at dealing with stuff. But I think what that dealing with stuff is a euphemism for is rebellion in some form or fashion, quite honestly, most likely. Many times, and put it that way. And I think God's saying here, you know, he's got his solution. Don't pursue your own direction and answers, but look at the answers I'm giving you. And again, he's got this, there is a full picture of the answer he's giving us here um, that we'll get into as we go on. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, instead of being the, the one that, you know, looks, uh, looks at this from the perspective of God's going to go get the bad guys that aren't us, <laughs> we need to say, there, uh, but for the grace of God go I. And we say amen, and if we're even honest-er, if we take that nail set, there go I, right now. You know, that's me. That's what I do. 
And, you know, on many occasions, and maybe you can relate to what I'm, I'm about to say, but on many occasions, I, my prayers sort of sound like this, you know, oh, Lord, I just take this particular situation, you know, just, okay, I'm just turning this over to you, i.e., I can't handle it anymore. And it sounds spiritual, and it sounds good, and I don't, I don't say that that's not a good place to arrive at, because it, it is a good place to arrive at, but to look a little deeper, the reality is, and I think the place we want to get to as we walk more and more into the presence of God, like we talked about last week, this process that happens continually over and over. We want to get to a place where it's not that, please, Lord, take this, I can't handle it anymore, because the truth is, what that means is we were just basically, it's a, let's rephrase that. I tried to handle this, you know, and I wasn't even thinking about you, and now I can't, so would you handle it? It's a small change, and again, but it's, it's a significant change, I believe. And I think it, it, it points to the idea that we've heard many times from up here that, that Rabbi Chaim has talked about is um, allowing, seeking God for everything, allowing God to be involved in every area of our life. And again, this is this, is this sort of <laughs> rabbinic tension kind of thing of, well, do, so do I let God work or do I work? Well, yes, you know. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, that, that's, where, that's where it is. But we need to, we need to you know, uh, be willing to open up every area of our life and not look at just the things. I'm pretty good at these things. I can handle this. I got that. This, I really have trouble. So I'm going to focus on this trouble area of my life. And this is where I'm going to put my prayer and my efforts and my focus on praying for these things. That's good, sure. We, you know, there are times we work on certain things, but the reality is we need to open the whole thing up um, and give them every, every uh, access to all of, of everything that's going on. And sort of the third movement of this psalm that I see uh, kind of talks, I think, sort of shows where um, the grace of God really comes through and the mercy of God. This is w- where we may have felt condemned up to this point, you know, pointing out that this might be us. Uh, the truth is that God always is merciful and gracious, and this is what he wants. In fact, um, I think, Sharon, I'm not sure, if you look in verse 7, and uh, most of your translations probably say, I will proclaim. This is basically God saying, I've got a plan. I will proclaim. Does anyone have anything, anything other than I will I will make. The, the Hebrew here lends itself to a, a very and it's a, it's a very strong desire. I checked this with a very reliable source. Um, it's, a, it's a desire word. It's the same desire we saw in, in, in the Genesis 12 today. Genesis 12, I believe, doesn't necessarily say, I will bless you, like, i.e., this will come to pass. This is God saying, I desire to bless you, Abraham. I desire to make your name great. I want to... Same, same grammatical stuff going on here. I desire, let, let, please, let me tell you about the plan. Let me tell you the solution to this problem that you're finding yourself in. And, you know, there's this, there's this, um, this is the really the heart, I think, the heart of the, the heart of the, of the, of the passage, you know. And why is it there? I want to take a sec just to look at why, why might we even be, you know, this 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 is a. I hope I can get this out right, the way I want to, the way I see it is that. It's an interesting passage. Some people view Psalm one and two, as uh, one psalm. You ever heard that? People think, and actually, I think in, in one of the older manuscripts, one of the old Greek manuscripts, it actually is one put together. It just starts with psalm, what we have Psalm one and what we have ending Psalm two, all as Psalm one. And we could argue whether is that the case, is it not the case. A lot of it is uh, because these, these words are repeated. You know, uh, Mike, I'm glad Michael brought that up today. He was reading from Psalm 1. I thought that's great <laughs> because, you know, Psalm 1 starts off the same way that Psalm 2 ends. And they call that an inclusio. And so people, you see, whether there are two psalms or one psalms, the ideas are linked. 
So think about Psalm 1 and what Michael talked about for a minute. You know, this, this is, uh, we just talked about the one who walks, you know, in the path of righteousness and does not sit in the seat of the scorner. Oh, the bad, the bad folks, yeah, they're going to pass away like dust in the wind, you know. But the righteous one, they're the ones that are going to be blessed and be happy and so forth. You know, uh, be, be like a tree that's planted by rivers of living water. Your fruit will never with, you know, f- uh, never be bad. Your leaves will never wither. How many of y'all feel like that all the time? <laughs> and, and again, I think, I think that's the right response. I think the reality is uh, our faith is a fragile thing. It can be shaken. And I think that's, maybe that's one reason why David, you know, Psalm 2 starts off with, well, why? Okay, that's great. I'll show you. Happy is the one who walks through. Well, then why do the nations conspire and rage and people shout in vain, all this kind of stuff? And God goes through, you know, we go through it again. Look, this is what's going to happen, you know? And this, this is what, they're, they're, it's in vain. And again, we end with the message of mercy and grace here, that blessed is the one uh, who takes his refuge in God. So I think that's a real genuine assessment of our faith. And we can argue theology and, oh, you know, do we, can we lose your salvation and this, that, and the other? Well, the reality is, I think we've got a thing on front of the, front of the ark here we have every week. And if you've never looked at it before, it has it in English too. Basically, it says, know, it, know before whom you stand. And I think it's an, it's a, it's an encouragement to say to, to our faith, you know. And in the Bible, when you, when you hear about people experiencing God or the angel of the Lord and so forth, you, you don't ever see it like, oh, hey, oh, angel of the Lord, hey, cool, how you doing? Dave, nice to meet you, you know. Uh, I'm Elijah, or whatever. What happens? Ah! You know, they're all just like in fear and, sh- and trembling. And I think that's a good picture of just the fragility of of our faith and where we need to be. I mean, you read this here, it says, it says to serve the, you know, serve the Lord with, um, with fear, rejoice, and trembling. You know, when you're rejoicing at a, at a party, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, whatever, are you dancing but terrified out of your mind? Maybe you are. You're a little self-conscious of dancing. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the truth is, when you're rejoicing, you're rejoicing. When do you ever think, I'm going to rejoice in trembling? I'm going to serve fearfully. Well, I think we do that when we recognize who God is, and we know it, who it is before whom we stand. So I think that you could spend a lot of time in that idea there, because I think just gloss over that about, you know, so I serve in fear, rejoice in trembling. It's a pretty interesting concept there. But again, I think it's a, it's a fair assessment of our faith and the fragility of our faith and the, the honest sort of way in which you were to look at it. And it's okay to say why. Why sometimes? Why does it not seem like I'm the tree that's planted by rivers of living water? I seem to be following you in everything I do. And then the your choices. You can rebel, you can try to stop or whatever, or you can remember uh, what this psalm is telling us here. So I want to take a few minutes just to look at this last idea, this, this again, what I call sort of the message of grace and, and mercy that break through here in this last line that talk about happy are all who take refuge in him. We may have talked about uh, happy before. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to mention, you know, this idea um, of refuge. I used to uh, ride motorcycles and um, maybe I will again one day. I don't know. But I uh, sold, uh, sold one before I came to Colorado. To, and that was part of the plan. It was very sad. But uh, my wife was happy. <laughs> happy are all whose husbands sell their motorcycles. Um, but maybe you've been driving on the highway before. Even in Colorado, it happens. Uh, you're driving under an overpass, and you see some motorcyclists uh, under there. Maybe it's raining out. And they're under there taking a refuge, you know, taking refuge from the storm to put on some gear or do whatever. Maybe they're waiting the storm out because in Colorado that'll be like 
45 seconds, and then the, <laughs> the rain will stop. And Maryland is not like that. You, you suit up, and you, then you freeze your face off for the next however long you're out for. But uh, that is a picture of refuge, taking shelter from you know, when things are bad. We duck for cover. Things are bad. Let's, let's run away and, and get somewhere safe. Um, and that's definitely a picture of refuge. But I think it goes a little deeper here in this message and a little deeper for us in terms of a devotional way to consider what it means to have God as our refuge because this, uh, this is a type of refuge, it says, that makes people happy. And this happy is, is, is the word happy. Some of your translation might say blessed. Usually you're either going to see blessed or happy. Uh, there's two words. We have the word that's not up here, baruch is blessed. And this word's not baruch. This is ashrei. Ashrei, you hear that word. And this is a real s- specific nuance of this word that... Um, gives the idea of being, sure, blessed, happy, but happy as a result of walking with the Lord to a point where you're, where you're envied. You could say, you know, hey, envied are all those who, whose refuge is the Lord. So this is a personal type of refuge. This isn't just, um, you know, taking ducking for cover under a bridge. I mean, sure, you're, you're happy for a moment, but this is not that picture where, oh, it's raining, <laughs> get under the bridge. Yeah, I'm real happy now. I'm happy I'm under the bridge. I'm happy. You know, this is not, that's, that's a different kind of refuge. This is a personal kind of refuge we're talking about and a personal kind of refuge that God is desiring to tell us about. And I thought of this picture, you know, we used to live in a place that had a courtyard and a lot of kids around and different people was on, on, on campus at Denver Seminary. So there were other students and we knew everybody there. And one day, uh, my, one of my daughters, the, she was toddling around. She was almost two years old at the time. She was toddling, toddling around there, and uh, a couple girls came by. I called them girls. They were in their 20s. They were students, but they were, t- they were half my age, so they were girls. And they, <laughs> they said, oh, Levia. And they started, you know, they wanted to come to see her, right? And Levia was just playing. She hears the voice, and she had known them, I guess. And she turns around, eyes got big, you know, came to me like this and uh, wanted me to pick her up. And so I picked her up and held her. And she uh, was able then to kind of look back and look at them and engage them a bit. She listened as they talked to her, you know. Um, but, but from that position, she was definitely felt a lot more uh, comfortable. And they left. And then she just chilled there, you know. She just wanted to be there. And just living out her life there, checking things out and kind of enjoying her time. And it's not the only time. She doesn't always want to just be in my arms, and nor does my, even my, my six-year-old son would like me to carry him all the time. Uh, and want to just be held in my arms. Nothing, not because there's a snake on the ground, not because, you know, someone's chasing them or coming after them. Uh, in, in Levia's case, there was a moment of terror, so there was a bit of refuge there. But they just want to chill and hang out there and be there. And I'd love to hold them also, you know. Um, but the reality is, um, I got things to do. <laughs> you know, I got things to do. I got places to be. My arms get tired. Um, but that's the that's the picture, I think, that, this, this idea of taking refuge in God is all about. And it's not something that happens overnight, for sure. But it, that's the picture. It's not the picture of a motorcycle parking under a bridge to get out of the rain. Um, it's the picture of a child running into their parents' arms or comfortably sitting on their lap. A parent who, remember, doesn't get tired, doesn't sleep, doesn't slumber. So the marriage of these two concepts, you know, happiness, envy, blessedness, refuge, um, is the true message, I think, of this psalm, at least the true message that I want to draw out today and look at, and that there's no refuge from God, necessarily, like he's somehow the cause of the storms in your life, even if he is restraining you. These are not punitive uh, 
punishments that we're getting when the storms come. The only refuge there is is in God as the sovereign uh, and merciful ruler of the universe. And again, this is, a, this is something that takes time. This is something that takes time, that chilling out in God's lap or in his arms. And I'm, I'll be the first to say it's not something that, you know, that comes naturally, not something that comes easy. It's, it's not something that, it just takes time, something we need to walk into. That's why I see this as the, the setting of the nail. This is something that we have to repeat over and over. It's one thing just to talk uh, about it. And we can describe it. But description is not the way to sort of experience things. You know, I can say earlier today before I talked to Linda Zim, you know, and maybe you can relate. You ever had that, that constriction of the blood vessels in your, in your basal ganglia area? Anyone? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I had a splitting headache. Anyone had a splitting headache? Yeah, why? Because you've experienced it. I can talk about the blood vessels in the basal ganglia covering the membranes of the cranium. That's very clinical and it's great, but that's just a description. You know, you've experienced it. That's a whole other thing. Um, and that's the difference between knowing, knowing God, knowing how he operates, knowing what he wants for us, uh, and knowing, you know, about God. We can know about him all day, but I think we need to know, we need to know him, and that's the spending time with him as our refuge. In part... You know, part of that, actually, let me ask you this. Where, where do you see, you know, when, when you read this psalm, and maybe you need to read it later today and think about where you might see yourself in this picture, you know? Are you, uh, are you with the kings and the rulers that are in rebellion, that are, you know, trying to loose yourself, pull yourself away from any restraint, anything that's just, you know, I just want to be me, and that's not me, and trying to pull yourself away from anything uh, that's, that's not, you know, that you feel is, onerous, hard, a hard restriction in your life. Are you there? Are you trying to, you know, really set yourself up uh, to kind of damage control to obtain independence and self-sustenance and make sure you can take care of yourself kind of thing? Is that, is that where you might be? <laughs> so what is it? What is it in your life? You know, this is, you can sh- that's fine, you can shout out. You don't have to, Chaim says, you know, it's good to be transparent. You just want to be naked. So <laughs> you can be transparent with an amen or a, like that kind of thing. Um, but where, you know, what, what is it in your life that uh, you're trying to orchestrate and, and maintain exclusivity over? Exclusive control, this is mine. You know, what is it? I want to encourage you that um, whatever those things might be, that I want you to, to look at this psalm and realize that God is calling out. This is not God at the end of the psalm saying, you're in rebellion. So guess what? When you least expect it, expect it. No, he's saying, look, this is where you are, and I, let me tell you. Let me tell you I've got a plan. I want to tell you about it, because he says, my wrath is coming, and it's coming quick. He's not saying it's coming when you least expect it, but he's saying it's coming quick. It's like when I yell to my kids when they're supposed to be in bed, hey guys, keep it down. Don't make me get angry, and I'm actually not angry at that point, but believe me, I'm going to get there, so you know, I'm giving you warning, not because I want to crush you, but I want, I, I know what's best for you. You need to go to bed, you know? But he's, he's got that plan, and I, I, I encourage you to accept it and to seek it and to take him up on his offer. And a biggest, a very large part of this, uh, we are a messianic congregation, and this is a messianic psalm, and a very big part of God's plan is the Messiah. And maybe we're, maybe we're, we're bucking that a bit. This is this, this weird idea of a, of God coming to earth as a man. And, but this, this psalm talks all about it. And this was God's plan for redemption, his plan for each one of us. 
So part of, I believe, part of that surrender, part of that surrendering uh, involves that as well. So we're going we're gonna to take a few minutes here as we close. We're going to take a few minutes uh, while we listen to some worship music. And after that time, after a few songs here, we, we will officially close our service. But in that time there, uh, we'll be available, a few of us will be available for, for prayer if you'd like to pray with us. Or uh, you can be at your seat. And I want you just to think about, again, what are the things that we're, that we've maybe on one end of the spectrum, maybe we've just been sort of trying to massage or orchestrate over here. What are the things maybe that we've been rebelling about? Or maybe we just kind of don't know, but we feel like there's something we'd like to ask, ask God to tell us. And that's kind of like what we read in the back of our bulletin today, asking for God to make it clear, you know, what our mission is, what, our, what he'd like us to do. So let's just take a few minutes to do that. Again, as we, as we worship the Lord together.